You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Okay, so um, I, let's pull no punches, right? Last week we went pretty long, and so I'm going to do my very best uh, to keep this week's uh, more in line with kind of what we normally do in, t- in terms of time. And so just know that uh, from the outset that I'm probably going to speak a little bit uh, more quickly than normal, um, and there are probably going to be some things that I say that, that maybe in your notes or just in your mental notes, right, there might be a little question mark there. And so my invitation that I made to you just a moment ago to come and speak to me after the gathering, if you wanted to, obviously um, still stands. And so I would love to, to talk more about this um, uh, as is needed. So, uh, but we're going to look at three things, right? And we, we, these are the same three things that we're going to look at in every covenant moving forward. And, and that's the, the nature of the covenant, right? Um, so essentially just kind of answering the question, who is Noah and, and what is this relationship that God is establishing with him? Right? Then we're going to talk about the blessings and the obligations of the covenant. Essentially, what does that agreement entail? Right? What are the particular details of that covenant relationship that God has set forth with this person? And then from there, of course, since the series is titled The Christ of the Covenants, we want to look at then how it is that Jesus fulfills this covenant, is the fulfillment of this promise that God makes to his people, right? So, so that's the three stages that we're going to work through, and like I said, we're going to try to do it fairly quickly. So the first thing we're looking at is the nature of the covenant, right? So we're, we're answering this question, who is Noah and what is at the core of this relationship that God initiates with Noah? And what we saw, right, as we read in chapter 6 was this, right? Remember, we're just, we're just a couple of chapters removed from that, that cataclysmic moment in human history where Adam, right, and Eve sin against God, and God proclaims over them a curse, and yet within the curse, this promise that, that He would make all things new, that He would restore uh, creation to its right order, right? But so we're just, a few, we're just a few chapters removed from that, and what we see is the outworking of the curse is, is happening, right? The toil, the struggle, the pain, the death, those things that God says we will now experience as a consequence of our sin have played themselves out, right? And we see Moses recounting for us the wickedness, the wickedness of the world. Over and over again, he mentions just the violence and the corruption, right, that is characterizing this, this, this humanity, this community um, of people, right? And so God sees this wickedness, and, and essentially in chapter 6, He determines to punish it, right? He says, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. And yet, as He's doing that, right, in verse 8, it says this, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. But Noah found favor in in the eyes of the Lord. And so uh, God looks out over His creation, this creation that has devolved essentially into corruption and into violence and into all of the other outworkings of sin, and He finds Noah, and it's upon Noah that God's favor rests. Right, so this is Noah. He's just another guy in this mess of creation that has been broken by sin. God looks upon him, and it tells us that God's favor rested upon him. God's favor um, was upon 
Noah, and because of that, he tells Noah, all right, now, um, I'm, I'm going to essentially start with a clean slate. I'm starting with you, but not just you, you and your wife, you and your sons, and your sons' wives also. And here's how you're going to escape my, my judgment on sin. Essentially, he says, build an ark, right? And he gives them all the dimensions and sort of what that is supposed to look like. And what uh, I think most of us know, if we've read the remainder of the story, right, is that that ark goes on to survive a, a, a drastic flood, right? So it tells us that God covers the, the earth in water um, and that Noah and the, those who were in his ark were the remnant, the, the, the few that were saved, right, during a, a period of 40 days, right? And we know that that ark survives and that, that God then arrives, right? we arrive um, at Genesis chapter 9, which is where God is reminding Noah, look, I've, I've established this covenant with you, and he sets the rainbow in the sky, right? This is, so all fairly, should be fairly familiar to us, right? Noah, his family are spared from this judgment. So that's, that's who Noah is, right? Just historically speaking, that's who Noah is according to the Bible, according to the records that Moses is here writing. Now, so let's talk about the covenant, though, right? This relationship that, that Noah has with God that's, that's unlike, right, those, those who are going to experience judgment, right? What is it that sets Noah apart? Well, in verse 618, it says this, chapter 6, verse 18. It says, but I, now this is God speaking, right? So when he says, but I... I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you, right? Now, we talked about last week how this language actually um, connects the covenant that God makes with Adam to the covenant that God makes with Noah, right? This is actually the first time that we see the word covenant in, in the Bible, period, right? And so we, we kind of, if, if you weren't here last week, we, we talked about how that that actually, that language there presupposes an existing covenant that is at play. And so what, what God is saying here is that Noah, right, Noah plays a very specific role in this covenant that belongs to God that he is establishing with his people. He's making the covenant firm. He's establishing that covenant. And so this is where, again, we see that that these are linked, that this, is, that this is God working, moving, operating purposefully in order to establish this relationship with His people. And I think one of the ways that we see it most clearly is that um, this, this covenant that God establishes with Noah, right, which we read in, in chapter 9, really is just a repetition of what we read in Genesis 1 and 2 last week. Right, this is what it says in chapter 9, verse 1. And God, this is after the flood, right? This is everything's sort of done, and God's making his covenant with Noah. Chapter 9, verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. And then verse 2 The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps upon the ground, all the fish in the sea, into your hand they are delivered. What is that? have dominion, right? So again, very, very similar, exactly the same language as what is given to Adam in 
the Garden of Eden. Be fruitful and multiply, have dominion over all the earth. And then we, when we look at the, the name, right, the name that, that Noah is given in Genesis 5.22, this is what it says. Finding my place here. <laughs> um, it tells us that Noah was given the name Noah, right, because out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. I'm sorry, that was verse 29, by the way. Right? So all of the same components of that original covenant that God made with Adam, he's repeating here with Noah, right? Adam would be fruitful and multiply, have dominion over the earth, and enter into God's rest, the Sabbath of God. Now with Noah, God is saying, be fruitful and multiply, subdue the earth and have dominion over it, and he is named because it's through him that toil, relief, Sabbath, rest will come. All right, so exactly the same language. But what I want us to recognize is that when, when God says, I will establish my covenant, I want us to be reminded that the relationship that God has with Noah is not something that Noah has earned. Although it uses words like blameless, that doesn't necessarily mean sinlessness. So Noah's not perfect. Noah's still marred by creation. Noah still has all the frailties um, that, that anybody else would have. And yet God's favor, right? Noah finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. God establishes his covenant with Noah, right? And as a result, Noah is expected to walk in obedience to him. And, and we find that, that he does that. He builds the ark. He does what the Lord has called him to do. And so this is the relationship uh, that Noah has with God and God's gracious initiative in it, right? In God's favor falling upon Noah, in, in God coming to Noah and saying to him, I will establish my covenant with you, right? I don't want us to uh, be absent-minded when it comes to looking at, again, his gracious initiative in this process. And the reason that I, that I want us to, to see that is because of what we're going to see next. So let's look at the, the blessings and the obligations of the covenant, right? In essence, what does God promise in this covenant? And then what does God expect in this covenant from his people, right? And of course, we'll go on to see how, how Noah fails at that. But so there's, I think there's three things, there, there's three sort of overarching um, blessings of this covenant. Um, the, one of them is very particular, right? So there's a particular grace aspect of this, of this covenant. Now here, here's, here's what I mean by that, right? In that there's an aspect of this covenant that is, that is for Noah, right? In that, in that from this mass of depraved humanity, God shows His grace to Noah. Out of thousands and thousands, tens of hundreds of thousands, I mean, we, there's no way to know exactly what the population count was, right? But out of this mass of humanity, this depraved, in sin, under judgment humanity, God saves one man and his family. They experience the blessing of salvation while others continued in their hardened ways. Now, again, the, the, the reason that I think we need to be reminded of God's gracious initiative is that there, this, this objection, I think, generally comes up when it comes to talking about God, or at least the God of the Bible, 
Um, and I think maybe even for some of us, if we are currently Christians, this is a doubt that maybe many of us share. And that we look at this, we look at a broken, helpless, sinful earth, and God picks Noah and only Noah. And we go, how, how is that fair? Right? How is that fair? And yet I think that um, Moses gives us a great hint as to, um, as to how we can essentially um, reconcile th- those two realities, right? That God, is, that God is just and yet that He is gracious and that in His graciousness He is not unjust, right? We talked about last week how Genesis chapter 3 verses 1 through 13 were instrumental in telling us how we are culpable for our sin, that, that, that we're responsible, that that, that, that 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 falls upon us, right? And in Genesis 6, um, we see again Moses just making it very, very, very clear that this sinfulness abounds and that this sinfulness is something that we are responsible for. And I think the, the reason for that is that it's only when we see sin as inherently deserving of judgment that we can cope with, with God's action here. There's a, um, there's a story about a, a, an old theologian by the name of St. Anselm, and uh, he was teaching on uh, this covenant to, to a class, and, and the, the, the same accusation was essentially brought up. He said, I don't see how this is fair. And St. Anselm responded, well, I see then that, that you do not understand sin. And so what we have to know as we proceed forth and as we see that God is gracious in this is the gravity, right? The, the, the grave nature, the, the utter offense that sinfulness is to a holy God. And to a holy God that created us to be holy in whose image we were made in order to reflect His glory and holiness. Right? And so the fact that God would save even one is utterly gracious. So there's a, that's the particular grace aspect, right? There's saving grace that, that Noah will experience apart from the rest of mankind. But there's also a common grace aspect. And what I mean by that is this. Um, Noah experiences a particular grace, but through this covenant, through this promise that God makes with Noah, particularly the promise to keep things in order and to, know, like, to not do this ever again, right? That there's a grace that, that everyone experiences, that regardless of whether you are a Christian in the room and have experienced God's saving grace, right, you still experience God's common grace by virtue of this of this covenant. And here's, here's what I mean by that, right? God, in this covenant, commits himself to preserve the present order of the world so that the work of redemption can be accomplished, right? Genesis chapter 8, verse 22 um, says this, and I'll just read it for you. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease, right? And that, that happens right after he says that, look, I'm, I'm never again going to curse the ground in this way. I'm never going to do this, even though the intention of a man's heart is evil from his youth. I will never again strike down every living creature as I have done. And he says, look, 
order is going to remain. Seasons will remain. Day and night will remain. And so God promises that none of those things will cease as long as the earth endures. This regularity and this order will be preserved in creation. Why? Again, so that the work of redemption might be accomplished. So that the promise that that God made in Genesis 3 about one who would come and restore the brokenness could continue to move forward. Where our sin brought chaos into the world, God promises to restore order. So there's a particular grace for Noah. There's a common grace for all people that we all experience, that we all benefit from. And there's a universal grace aspect. And now I think that um, we need to be clear when we use terms like this, because what I don't mean is that um, there's there's uh, a universalism, right? Meaning that um, that everyone will experience salvation at the end, that, that really no matter what you believe, it doesn't matter, we're all going to the same place. God's covenant and God's redemption uh, work towards that end through many different ways, right? I think one, Jesus made that clear in what he says about himself, but I think also just the destruction of all these people in the flood also point to that reality as well, that, that, that God's not universalistic, but that there is a redemption for the universe. And here's what I mean by that, right? It's not just our relationship with God and our relationship with one another that is thrown off in the curse, right? It's all of the natural order. It's all, it, it, it's, it's all of the inanimate creation. All of it is broken. All of it suffers from that which we brought into the world, which is sin, right? And And what God is saying in this, and what God is making clear, is that this fallen universe can expect a complete restitution in the the redemptive plan that God is setting forth. So what that means is that this covenant, right, that, that God is establishing with Noah has cosmic consequences. Not only... Right? Not only will this impact every tribe, tongue, and nation, it will also involve a renovation of the world itself. The inanimate creation as a whole will benefit from this covenant that God sets out with Noah. And if you've ever read Romans chapter 8 um, and not just been freaked out about that one part um, that talks about those whom he foreknew, he predestined, those who he predestined, he called, right? Um, if you've ever read that um, and maybe been a little bit confused, right? This is the link. This is the link to that. Romans chapter 8, 19, verse 21 says this. The creation, right? The creation itself, right? The inanimate creation itself waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay, brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. So again, so God is making all things new. The creation itself groans, longs for the day when these things are restored and made new. And as a sign and as a seal of God's grace on this covenant, what does he do? He sets his rainbow in the sky, reminding us, one, that, that judgment was deserved and yet not given to Noah, and that God pledges, again, to preserve that natural order that God, that, that God pledges 
to keep us from the chaos of the flood in order, again, that this covenant might move forward in order that redemption might be had. And so what's the obligation for Noah, right? Well, it's the same as Adam, right? He's the covenant, he's the covenant head, right? God's grace falls upon him. He says, because of my relationship with you, Noah, all right, your, your wife, your sons, and your sons' wives, and everyone after you. So he's to be this new covenant head. He's essentially, st- he's the new Adam. He's starting over, right? Starting over creation. And yet, we see very shortly thereafter, right? We didn't read this, but Genesis chapter 9, verse 20 says this, Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine, and became drunk, and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward, and covered the nakedness of their father. So just like Adam, Noah fails as the blameless covenant representative. He partakes of fruit improperly. He finds himself naked and ashamed. And this begins or really perpetuates the burning question of the entire New Testament, which is this. Will there ever be a faithful covenant representative? Adam fails. Noah fails. We're going to see in the next few covenants, Moses will fail. Abraham will fail. David will fail. Will we ever, like judges, kings, rulers, other other. Um, other nations that, that end up dominating the people of God, right? Will we ever have a faithful representative? That's the, the burning question of the Old Testament. And of course, you and I benefit greatly from being able to now read the New Testament, all those books that were written after Jesus came. And what we get to see in those is how Christ fulfills these promises that God makes, these promises to extend saving grace to a particular people, these promises to restore order out of the chaos of sin, these promises to preserve creation, not just preserve it, but to make it new. And so how does, how does Jesus do this, right? How do we essentially pull the rabbit out of the hat here? Um, let me remind us of, of just what's taken place thus far in Genesis, right? Because it's all, it's all connected. Creation, right, tells us that, that God was over the deep, over the waters, right? Paints this picture of chaos. And then it tells us that it was out of that chaos that God created order, right? He creates things out of the water. He, God brings forth the earth from the water, producing order from chaos, And then he creates Adam. Adam is given a covenant. He's appointed to rule and to share in God's rest. He's placed in a garden, and ultimately he sins. He's left naked, ashamed, and he's expelled from that garden to the east. And as a result of that, judgment is brought upon mankind. God reverses creation, right? And now, again, in Noah's time, water covers the earth. Right? So... Earth was formless and void. God brings the land out of the water, creates order out of chaos. God reverses creation as a judgment upon it for its sinfulness and wickedness, covers the earth with water again. God in Noah saves a particular remnant 
Noah is the new Adam, covenant head of a new world, brought out of water. He's commanded to be fruitful and multiply, plants a vineyard, consumes its fruit improperly, left naked and ashamed. Right? You, there, there, you should see a, 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 a very clear parallelism between these two. And what I want us to see is the role that, that, that one, water plays in this story, but then just generally across the Bible as, as it really is sort of a representation of, uh, of chaos and particularly chaos brought on through human sinfulness. And what I want us to do now is with that in mind, be reminded of a very simple story, maybe not even one of Jesus' most miraculous or outstanding stories uh, in, in the accounts of his life, right? But in Mark chapter 4, what happens? In Mark chapter 4, Jesus and his disciples out in a boat, right? And a storm comes. And the disciples are frightened and uh, reasonably so, right? If you've ever been out in a small boat on rough water, like, you, you, you know, you understand. And it tells us in that account of Jesus' life that, that Jesus then stood up in the boat and he said, peace, be still. And the waters calmed, and the clouds receded, and order was restored. And now we may just think that, okay, either one, that was just a fluke, you know, he just, like, he did it, all of a sudden, the, you know, the, the clouds moved away, and the earth was turning, and it was a certain temperature outside, and so the waters calmed. Like we try to scientifically explain it, but again, even just the, the, the sort of the outward details of this story really ultimately betray for us or tell us of an entirely deeper meaning that Jesus is communicating purposefully when he does this. That he has the power within himself to calm the winds of chaos, to temper the storm, to bring order where there was chaos, that he has that ability in and of himself and he 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 shows that on a very micro scale right in this in just the sea of galilee but what jesus is saying in that moment is that he's come to do that on a cosmic scale and so the question that we have to ask then right okay jesus can calm the waters in the sea of galilee how does he calm the waters of sin how does he how does he cause order to be brought out of the chaos that we have wreaked upon the world. How does he do that? Well, on, on the cross, um, the Bible tells us that Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath. His wrath towards sin, his wrath and anger towards death and towards Satan that Jesus that that the flood of God's wrath the flood of God's appropriate response to our sinfulness that judgment that we are due that the flood of that was unleashed upon Jesus and that he drank it all that he received all of that that he was crushed by that flood in that moment on the cross and that's why he says it is finished But then, of course, as we just celebrated, we know that three days later that Jesus is not subdued ultimately and finally by that flood, but that he takes it upon himself and in so doing swallows up all of the punishment that we were 
uh, that we're destined to receive and now is risen in victory over it. That Jesus swallows up the fullness of sin's chaos, is himself swallowed up by it, but then is resurrected in victory over it. And now Jesus serves as the ark by which his faithful remnant, those who are in him, are saved, preserved. Right? The Bible talks regularly about us being in Christ, about how His righteousness is put onto us. It's through Him that we escape the chaos of our sin and death, that we are released from the judgment that is due for our sin and our death. Right? Jesus is the proverbial ark. Jesus is the ark by which those who would who would be saved, will be saved, will be preserved, will be brought to the glorious new kingdom, the new creation that is established through the perfect covenant head that is Jesus, who not only fulfills the covenant of works by living a life that is blameless before God, but also then substitutes, substitutes His perfect work for our imperfect one. So the yearning, the burning question of the Old Testament of will we ever have a faithful representative is answered yes in Jesus. And so what do we do with that, right? I mean, theology is a wonderful thing, and especially covenant theology, when again we see God's successive waves of grace, God's continued faithfulness, right? When we look at covenant theology, it should prompt us to say, or, or to sing, right? Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father, there is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not. Thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. Or grace, grace, God's grace, right? Grace that is greater than all of our sin. But that grace is given so that we would live in light of it, right? And so I think there's two things that that we can take from this. Um, First is this. One, we are to be good stewards um, of the creation, right? The creation longs for redemption too. That's what Romans chapter 8 says, which I know is weird to think, right? That the creation itself longs for redemption, that the creation with us yearns for the brokenness to be relieved, right? And so in caring for creation, right, There's a measure of God's care in that. There's a measure of what God wants to do that, again, we get to be a part of. So here's the thing. We talked all throughout the book of John about us being agents of reconciliation, right? So 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says we are. That Jesus came to to make us reconciled to God and that now we, as members of Jesus' body, are also agents of that same reconciliation. We bring saving grace to people who God, by the Spirit, empowers to be effective for salvation, right? Agents of reconciliation. What I'm saying here, as an outplaying of this covenant, is that we are also agents of redemption, right? God's common grace. So we're agents of, of, of saving grace, 
right? Particular grace, the means by which people will see and know God and not be cast aside is through Jesus. We're agents of that, but we're also agents of redemption, God's common grace that will see the earth restored, that will see what is broken be made new again. And so we care for the creation. And then the second thing I would say is this, and and this is the most important because I I think that um, this is something that should most characterize the church that, in my opinion, um, probably does the least, at least in our time. We are to be a people marked by hope. We're to be a people marked by hope. Now, look, like, I know, right? Like, life is hard, right? I'm not not saying you're not going to have moments of despair. I'm not saying we're not going to have moments where we lament and do so appropriately. Whether it's personal issues, broader social issues, (laughs) presidential election issues, right? I'm not saying that those don't require or, or beg a certain response, but we should be marked by hope through that response, right? We should look at, like, like again, Romans 8 acknowledges suffering, right? It says, look, pain is a real thing. Suffering is a real thing. But then it says, but those things we endure and we bear in hope because we know that God is remaking all of these things, that God is making all things new, and that God is faithful because we've seen it covenant after covenant after covenant. In spite of Adam's faithlessness, he initiates the covenant of grace in Genesis 3. In spite of Noah's faithlessness, he continues with the covenant of preservation so that the work of redemption can be completed. And so we should be a people marked by hope. And I think all too often, all too often, we're we're utterly cast aside because maybe maybe the size of our Roth IRA isn't as high as this expert says it should be. Or maybe if this person gets elected, then religious liberty is done forever. Or maybe, you know, like any number of things. And yet I think what, 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 we, what we can know and what we can understand, again, just by seeing God's graciousness to Noah and his fulfillment of the covenant through Jesus is that we have hope. Right, that's what 1 Peter chapter 1 is all about. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to what? To a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And it tells us in that same scripture that that we are being guarded by God's own power through faith. We're being preserved. In the, the ark that is Jesus will not fail. If Noah's ark didn't fail, Jesus, the perfect ark, is not going to fail. So we have hope for today. Or as the hymn says, right? Strength for today, bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. Great is thy faithfulness. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for this morning. Uh, we do thank you again just for the opportunity to gather together. And we praise you, God, that you are a faithful God, even in the face of a faithless people. And Lord, as we come to your t- table and we celebrate communion this morning, um, w- would we be reminded of the faithfulness of Jesus on our behalf? That this is the means by which we are saved. This is the, the, the broken body, the shed blood of Jesus is the ark by which we are, we are kept safe from the storms and the chaos of sin and brought into a new covenant reality, a new kingdom, a greater kingdom, a kingdom where God's peace, blessing, and joy reign and rule in the person of Jesus. And Lord, help us to be reminded that you've given us this time, that the, that the creation right now, the order of creation is preserved so that the work of redemption could continue. So if there are people in our lives or in this room this, this morning that don't know you, Jesus, you have given them this time so that they might be afforded the opportunity to step into this free, utterly gracious covenant relationship with you by the work of Jesus. And so, Lord, would you do that this morning? And should you tarry, Father, should you take your time in returning, would you remind us that that is the purpose for which you do so? We thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen.